Welcome to the Aerospace Advantage podcast. I'm your host, John Slickbaum. Here on the Aerospace Advantage, we speak with leaders in the DoD, industry, and other subject matter experts who explore the intersection of strategy, operational concepts, technology, and policy when it comes to air and space power. So if you like learning about aerospace power, you are in the right place. To our regular listeners, welcome back. And if it's your first time here, thank you so much for joining us. As a reminder, if you like what you're hearing today, do us a favor and follow our show. Please give us a like and leave a comment so that we can keep charting the trajectories that matter to you most. This week, it's time for The Rendezvous, our monthly installment where the Mitchell team digs into stories you've seen in the headlines. And this time around, we have General David Deptula with us. Sir, welcome. Hey, Slick. Great to be here. And we're also happy to welcome Anthony Laser Lazarski back with us. Great to be back. And of course, we have Todd Sledge Harmer with us as well. Great to be here. If you're new to The Rendezvous, Laser and Sledge are our Washington experts who have been part of The Rendezvous crew for quite some time now, so we always love having them here. We also have Tim Ryan from our Mitchell Institute Space Power Center of Excellence. Tim, welcome. Hey, sir. Great to be back. Awesome. All right, so I just want to get started with Sledge and Laser. There's been a lot going on in terms of the defense bills and the Hill right now. Normally, it's a pretty straightforward process where budget top lines are set and the appropriators and authorizers pass their respective bills. But this year, there's a lot more at play. So what's going on with the House, with the Freedom Caucus, and the pressure that they're exerting on Speaker McCarthy? And how could that impact the fiscal year 24 defense bill for getting out the door on time and plus a lot of other key legislation? It's been a bit of a, a crazy and a hectic first six months of the year. Such and I have been around. You always say, I've never seen that before, but it really is all about budget. The debt limit ceiling, we got through that, the deal at $1.59 trillion, It's a spending cap. So then you have a House and Senate. So Senate marks up to the top line, but they're looking to add another $13 billion in emergency appropriations. That's about $8 billion for defense, $5.7 for non-defense. Then you get the House side and says, I understand that's a top line, 1.59, but we're going to mark down less. So they mark down 1.47, and that's the Freedom Caucus. And they're pushing, they're looking at where the debt is, what we have to pay back on the debt. So they're trying to have less spending. So they've agreed upon a lower cap, and they're even pushing for additional funding cuts to make up for rescission fundings that the appropriators were trying to add back into the FY20 bill from canceled FY23 budget authority. So it creates a billion-dollar difference between the House and the Senate, whatever the final numbers are going to be. And then given the slim majority that the Republicans have on the House side, they can only lose four votes to get 290. 18 to get a bill passed if all the Democrats vote against it. So this gives the House Freedom Caucus the ability to exert more influence on the legislation going through the House across the board, especially the appropriations bills. So Speaker McCarthy's walking a fine line, trying to get 218 votes, which has resulted in most of the bills you've seen coming out being partisan, unlike what's coming out of the Senate, which is bipartisan. So in the end, we're going to have to conference the two bills together, and what's being passed in the House is not going to be able to pass in the Senate. So if we were to look at it, I would expect the bill that ultimately gets conference if we get a conference, because there's no guarantee that we're going to get these bills at the end of the year, but it'll probably look more like the Senate version with obviously some House pieces included. And that'll set us up for continuing resolution, which also we may or may not get because of the Freedom Caucus, and we may get a shutdown. But the leadership that I'm hearing, no one's looking at a shutdown, nobody's intending, but we're just going to have to wait to see when we get out there in September. 
Yeah, the only thing I would add there is in terms of leverage that the Freedom Caucus has, remember, they've got three seats on the Rules Committee, and that's a lot more powerful than people think. They determine how and when things go to the floor or the process, rather, not necessarily the when. But they also have time on their side right now. When you look at Congress being out in recess until after Labor Day, that means that there's 12 legislative days for the House when they get back and 19 for the Senate. So there's not a whole lot of time. One of the things the Freedom Caucus wants to do is ensure that all 12 of the appropriation bills are passed separately. They will not agree on moving forward until all 12 have gone to the floor. Currently, there's only one that's gone to the House floor. Uh, and that was the Milcon VA bill. So there's a lot to do. There's very little time to do it. And I think that's primarily the leverage that they have. But specific to the NDA, one, one thing I wanted to point out that Laser mentioned about the conferences, this is the first time in, in three years that the Senate has actually passed an NDAA. And that's a big deal because it now can go back over to the House as a privileged resolution, or the conference report can as a privileged resolution, which means it can go directly to the floor. It doesn't have to go to the rules committee. And that will allow the conference committee, led by the big four, the chair and ranking member of both armed services committee, to pull out some of the controversial provisions that will allow a bipartisan, I think a wide bipartisan agreement on what the final bill looks like. In terms of appropriations, that's anyone's guess. That's going to be before the end of the calendar year, before that starts. Continuing a resolution is definitely in our future. Yeah, copy that. I appreciate that breakdown. And I want to follow up. When it comes to work that the HASC, the SAS, the HACD, and the SACD have to do, where are we? And what are the major differences between the current versions of their bills? Yeah, I think we've outlined that a little bit with the appropriations bills. The subcommittees have all marked their bills, or and the full committee in the House have marked their spending bills. Only one has gone to the floor. The Senate is still working through their subcommittee marks. They haven't gone to the floor yet. So there's a lot to do. And I think we could probably leave appropriations for a later discussion. But in terms of the NDAA, both bills passed their respective chambers. The House was very partisan. There are a lot of social issues. And those are going to be the big differences there. A lot on diversity, equity, and inclusion, CRT, abortion travel, and healthcare issues that I think are going to be the sticking points. But as mentioned earlier, there's going to be a process through the conference that pulls a lot of those controversial provisions out and lets a more moderate bill go in final version that will probably get passed with bipartisan support. Yeah, I just uh, agree with everything that Sledge had. Add a couple of things. There, there are some other differences from an Air Force point of view. I think there's a lot more restrictions on aircraft retirements or what we do with aircraft. So that's going to have to get worked out. But the big ones are the social issues. The nice thing is both House and Senate marked up to the same amount, 886, which is great. So the next step they're going to have is what we're hearing is nothing's going to get done next couple of weeks. A lot of the professional staff are traveling, taking some time off, which they all deserve, and they'll all be coming back around the end of August. There's a program, computer program that slams the two bills together, and they're going to start informally pre-conferencing, looking at the low-hanging fruit so they can get this bill ready. Sometime in September, we expect the House and the Senate to appoint conferees. House always appoints a lot more conferees that are outside the House Armed Services Committee. The Senate usually just appoints all the members of the Senate Armed Services Committee, and they'll get together, and that starts the formal process for conference. But expect that they will get the bill conference, the two bills conference, probably by the beginning of October. 
and then it'll sit because we don't know when leadership wants to bring this bill to the floor. They can bring it in earlier or they can wait because they typically will add on additional must-pass bills onto the NDAA. But I'm not hearing anything that's not going to pass. It'll just be when they want to bring it to the floor. And the only other thing to bring up, and there is talk about supplementals. I would expect a supplemental. Um, One is an emergency or FEMA type of supplemental for disaster, but their discussion also discussing Ukraine and potentially some defense, non-defense. Well, thanks for that, Laser. I, I really want to shift over to General Deptula. I'm chopping at the bit to ask you this, because at the same time, the U.S. is effectively cutting down its own defense spending, giving everything that Sledge and Laser just described. Our allies are going the other way with major boosts. So can you talk to about why that matters and the nuances that are at play? And you were the warfighting headquarters commander at PACAF, and you've seen allied partners up close from the flight line to the senior most levels of command. Thanks, Slick. The bottom line up front is that today the United States lacks sufficient organic capacity to execute its national defense strategy. In fact, I saw a new RAND report yesterday um, where Dave Ockmonick states that it's become increasingly clear that the United States defense strategy and posture are insolvent. Then he goes on to say, in a more positive vein, that the United States, acting in concert with key allies and partners, can restore credible postures of deterrence against major aggression. So clearly, our allies and partners are becoming more and more crucial because we're going to need to depend on those allies and partners to win in the future if we're ever confronted by China or Russia. Now, For our coalitions to succeed in a major regional conflict, we need to ensure that our allies are equipped with modern and interoperable equipment. And that's why having 17 nations operating the F-35 is absolutely crucial. That number of allied nations operating fifth-generation stealthy fighters really amplifies the warfighting capacity that the United States uh, is deficient in and is getting smaller and smaller. Uh, The same holds true with sensor shooter capabilities provided by systems like the MQ-9 and C-2 ISR systems like the E-7. And it's not just about the weapons platforms, but also the data links, processing capabilities, and everything else that comprises the 21st century information age ecosystem that really matters. Not to mention space, uh, which is absolutely fundamental to everything we do. So it's really encouraging to see Japan nearly double their defense budget. And the same is true with many of our European allies who have had their eyes open by Russia's aggression. This is gonna buy them capacity that looks after their interests And guess what? Ours as well. Now, let me also add that more and more, I'm hearing from senior Department of Defense leaders that they are increasingly concerned with what's essentially a decrease in U.S. defense spending over the next two years as a result of the congressional caps on our defense budget that you heard Sledge and Lager talk about. Just to remind our audience, we currently have the smallest, oldest, and least ready Air Force in our history, and it's on track to become smaller. So while these spending caps may undercut the initiatives that the Secretary of the Air Force is relying on to offset the decline in force structure, 
So while we are currently seriously short of warfighting capacity, we may soon be short of warfighting capability. Yes, sir. That last piece is what really drives it home. I've got to ask you, what about the industrial base's ability to absorb the increased spending by our partners and allies? Additive cash only provides value if the right equipment can be secured in the necessary volume and on a relevant timeline. This is where defense industries worldwide currently fall short, or at least free world defense industries. We cut back way too much in our defense industrial base capacity at the end of the Cold War uh, in search of a peace dividend, and now there is no surge capacity to meet demand. Just consider the time delays that we're seeing in supplying Ukraine, and the same holds true for the aid that we promised to supply Taiwan. These countries need solutions now, not years in the future. If the allies can't get what they need from the United States, they're going to go elsewhere. And this pulls resources we need to continue to steward our own production and innovation, and it empowers others, many of whom are competitors. So we need to solve this with smart industrial-based policy that's consistent and considers the new challenges that exist today. Of course, there's going to be a cost, but the cost of inaction is greater. It's called losing because we couldn't empower our airmen, soldiers, sailors, Marines, and Guardians. Yeah, thanks for that, sir. I always appreciate your insights. And Sledge and Laser, I want to get your thoughts on this because you work with these companies every day. And on one hand, they're seeing a huge surge in international demand. And on the other hand, they see things like a flattened U.S. defense budget, which means a cut when inflation is factored in. And it doesn't set the conditions necessary for substantial investments that could boost capacity. And that's obviously what the Air Force needs. And I just like to point out that these are U.S. jobs. And we're not just talking about industrial-based interests here. This is self-induced pain. And, you know, allies ultimately can go elsewhere for technologies if they need to. You're absolutely right. And General Deptula shacked the target. So, yeah, we're seeing an increase in international demand, but we see some counterbalancing factors that impact our industrial base and then our ability to increase production of weapons and weapon systems. So, first, and General Deptula said it, you know, we're not, the ODS doesn't have the budget needed to modernize to sustain train our force. We're not procuring enough weapon systems to run a cost effective production lines, and we can't replace our aging systems before they start running out of service life. And while most of our contractors can increase production, it's limited and can't just be turned on like a light bulb. You have to generate supply chain, tooling, personnel, it's everything that General Teptula said about it takes time, but we need to be able to do this or our allies go somewhere else. And many contractors are currently have orders pending, but they're still waiting on funding. The second thing is a big thank you to China and Russia for their part in increasing demand for U.S. systems around the world and seeing an increase in defense budgets of our allies and partners. And we're, we do, we're seeing a demand for U.S. weapon systems. And I expect to see that to continue. We see an increased support for Taiwan. General Deptula just announced uh, that we were sending additional weapons to Taiwan. And then there's going to be continued support for Ukraine, who's rapidly going through all the weapon systems that are being given to them. And then we see our war time stockpiles going down. So there's they're going to require multiple years of additional congressional funding to restock reserves. And then finally, 
we're still having acquisition problems for both foreign and domestic. And on a positive front, and you've all read it, but on a foreign military sales, there's progress and there's focus on state by State Department, DOD, and Congress to streamline how we can provide allies and partners with weapon systems they need. I know there's a Tiger team up in Congress, and then DOD's got a Tiger team, and they're trying to understand, okay, what do they need? What are the barriers that we need to get to? How do we get the technology to them? How do we help them with contracting support? How do we accelerate acquisition? And then part of it is how do we expand the industrial base, which we have to do, and then just increase U.S. support. So a little positive on the end. I'd like to take more of a contrarian view to your comment there about going elsewhere for technologies. First of all, I think there are certain technologies that allies cannot go anywhere else and get. And I think General Deptula's comment about 17 nations flying the F-35 is case in point. There's a lot of things you can get nowhere else. For some of the other stuff, um, there is value in looking at the industrial base, not just as the U.S. defense industrial base, but the allied industrial base. And that may mean that you buy things from our allies to make sure that we have the capacity across the coalition to do things. But at the end of the day, the procurement decisions made by the various nations are going to be based on cost performance and schedule. And if there's a value calculation that says it's better to buy an armored vehicle from country X than from the United States, the nations are going to make that. And at the end of the day, whether it's a European, Asian, or an American defense company that's trying to build a widget, They're competing for the same raw materials. And so the supply chain security, the long lead items are really going to affect if something's available. And the last thing I wanted to say here was just re-echo what what Laser said about FMS. That seems to be the the pacing item for a lot of U.S. defense technologies. And if we don't reduce the time it takes to get something approved and delivered, then other countries are going to go elsewhere. Yeah, that's a great point, Sledge. For anybody that's been watching the headlines lately, it's clear that Congress is tracking the threat posed by China. So one of the most active entities in this regard is the House Select Service Committee on the Chinese Communist Party. So Sledge and Laser, please talk to us about what this group is doing and their intended effect. Yeah, I think just big picture for a lot of people that that don't know, and I would encourage people to go to house.gov and look up the committee itself and who the members are and what they're trying to do. But it's really, it's a bipartisan committee that's focused on exposing the threat posed by the Chinese Communist Party to the United States, and to help develop a plan of action to counter that threat. And it's not just a threat to our national security, but our economy and our values as well. And I think probably the most important thing that the committee is doing in the near term is they're changing the narrative from China being a competitor to actually being an adversary. And they're doing that through a variety of different venues. They're holding hearings, they're publishing reports, They're issuing policy recommendations and draft legislation on a variety of topics that I mentioned, economics, uh, national security, critical infrastructure. And they're also, I think, importantly, they're conducting a series of investigations into certain activities on the part of the Chinese Communist Party. And a great example is Tuesday, the committee announced that they're opening an investigation into BlackRock, the investment company that is unwittingly using U.S. money to fund the defense activities of the Chinese Communist Party and putting American security at risk. So I guess to kind of put a a fine point on it here, it's still early. The initial results are promising to what this committee is going to do, uh, but I think they're developing a consensus that we cannot look at China merely as a competitor. They are an adversary. I really enjoy this 
committee and what's neat about it, you talk about a bipartisan, but they took in members with different areas of expertise and brought them all together to focus on the threat and Sledge said it, the threat. And the other thing I like about this is we've seen a whole bunch of House and Senate committees focus on China and have China hearings, but this is sort of an all-in-one. And, you know, as Sledge had said about the one investigation they're doing, but they're looking at IP theft. They're looking at the China concealing investment economic data. They're looking at unfair targeting of our businesses, foreign businesses in China. They're looking at Chinese debt. They're looking at tech transfer. Uh, How do we decouple from China? How do we have data security? And looking at China purchasing land, their military or national security installations. And then just investments, as Sledge said, of U.S. companies in China. I think they're going to be doing a lot, uh, still a lot to go, but I think that they got off to a great start. I want to get General Deptula and Tim in on this. Uh, What are your thoughts? First, I think it's really useful to have a congressional body focused on our number one threat. Obviously, there will be times when the committee members grandstand for optics. That's just the nature of politics. But in general, the vector is right, and nothing will improve our deterrent or ability to fight and win without a sustained spotlight on the threat and what they're capable of doing. Looking at the July 20 hearing that reviewed the Biden administration policy regarding China, members and witnesses were all highlighting smart things. The need to ensure we have the right balance of capabilities, the necessary capacity, and that we distribute our basing structure. These perspectives are not backed up by the necessary resources needed to make them a reality. As I mentioned earlier, our Air Force is still too small and too old. Concepts like agile combat employment and modern base defense are great, but they're simply not resourced sufficiently. We need to move past the platitudes and start asking questions about how to manifest these goals. The defense cuts via the congressional budget caps that I mentioned earlier suggest much work remains to be done. So this committee should be a helpful advocate in this regard by keeping a focus on our number one threat. The Chinese is a pacing threat and continues to grow its own space capabilities from that domain perspective. Unlike the United States, where we have NASA and this and the Space Force and a commercial, there's no distinction between those entities in China. General Whiting just testified it in his commander of U.S. Space Command testimony that we have to look at all things that they put up in, in a dual-use way. So let's take a look, though. Sometimes, you know, the numbers, they don't always reflect reality. Let's take launch, just as an example. In 2022, U.S. had 76 launches reach orbit. Chinese had 62. Now, the reality is when you take out Starlink launches out of that number, the U.S. had 31 and the Chinese had 62. That's a double. If you take a look further, the CP satellites since 1970, which is when they first started to do launch, they put up 842 satellites. Since 2019, they've put up 419 of that number. They are growing, they are pacing, and they are moving. They are even building a fourth launch complex so that they can actually enable faster launch capability. So this is something that that we have to be able to take a look at across all domains and make sure that we stay focused. Well, Tim, you bring up an interesting point there. I just want to dive into this with, if we didn't have commercial 
entities out there putting rockets in space just organically via NASA, what would that number be? Do you have any idea? You take a look at what the Space Force announced in the last week or so is based off of a high demand for launch through 2030. They're adding a third provider in their phase three of their national security space launch projects. So that's going to actually open up two lanes. They'll have select medium lift rockets for those lower orbit missions. And then they're going to do three heavy lift to be able to augment the dependence that we currently have on SpaceX and ULA. So they want to be able to lock down over that time from about 80 or 90 launches. But again, when you actually compare those to the trajectory that the Chinese launches are on, we are being outpaced on that. Now, you got to take a look at the capabilities, of course, that are being put on, what those are. However, when you just look at raw numbers, it is now pace. Yeah, absolutely. And I've got to ask you while you have the stage here, what's new in the space power realm? So the United States Space Force has been doing several announcements in the last couple of weeks. We just talked about the phase three of the National Security Space Launch. They also just released a draft framework called the Commercial Augmentation Space Reserve. That's a commercial military partnership. This gives the ability to be able to call upon commercial satellites in the time of conflict or crisis. Again, similar models that, that you see that we have in the air and sea. We're going to range in three levels. that will go from peacetime to regional conflict to war. Uh, of course, peacetime, you can have minimal commitment to the DOD, day-to-day type operations. And as we walk through regional conflict, crisis, all the way up to war and national emergency, that will be triggered. It's the highest level of commitment for those commercial satellite capabilities that want to opt into it to support the DOD. Spacecom has an activation authority written into that draft. Companies could be denied selling their services to the non-approved entity. So again, gives the ability to be able to tap into that, utilize them as a resource, and totally focus on supporting Department of Defense mission needs at the time that they're actually going to be needed. To kind of induce participation, if you will, they're given some incentives, improved information and threat sharing, maybe preferential contracting. And they talked about war risk insurance. However, they kind of went short when it came to the indemnification or that compensation for loss. They talked that would be inappropriate. And I think that's still going to be a little bit of a discussion point that we'll have to have. Yeah. And I appreciate that. I just want to quickly hop back into our discussion about budget caps and a growing space force. Let's all be reminded that this service was built because we wanted additive budget growth given the needs of standing up a brand new service, plus the need to meet this rapidly evolving mission demand in space. Can you talk to that quickly? Absolutely. I think that Sledge and Laser did a great job of kind of laying out that that cap discussion earlier. But yes, the threat is here and it is now. The current capabilities that, that the Space Force has on orbit were not designed to be operated in a warfighting domain. That's just the reality of it. This transition is going to have to take time. We cannot afford to lose any more time because we are constrained by caps and not being able to fund the Space Force where it needs to be. We take a look at the last Senate Appropriations Committee bill. They approved $29 billion. That's about a billion under what the president's budget called for. Very similar to what the House did last month. Most of the cuts they stated were based on cost performance and schedule that were presented to them. Again, we talked about that earlier. The House did raise some concerns last month. Space Force probably needs to pay attention to it, that, that they're concerned that they're not budgeting for programs across the five-year spending plan, being able to have sustainment on that. So that's something that they're going to have to take a look at. One thing that 
I did want to highlight that I think is interesting when we start to talk about the needs of the service as it stands up and a rapidly evolving mission. So they added for commercial space services, $40 million for a pilot program. That pilot program is going to demonstrate the use of commercial imagery sats to support military operations. As they put in their release, the Department of Defense will have to partially rely on new space capabilities that can fulfill traditional Title X intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance, and target tracking missions as a replacement for existing airborne assets. So again, they understand the problem there. $40 million is a start to be able to take a look at that as a pilot program. But clearly, when we start to talk about moving target indications from space, things like that, the path is being laid that those things truly are Title X ISR capabilities for targeting and tracking. Yeah, I appreciate that. Thanks for that rundown. And I want to get Sledge and Laser. What are your thoughts on the Space Command decision? Because that involves a lot of political dynamics. You're throwing us into the briar patch here, Slick, on that one. Um, and I, <laughs> Sorry, <you> know, my friend. <laughs> that's all right. That's why you get paid the big bucks. <laughs> that's right. So I remember I had a professor in grad school in a modeling and simulation class. He said, never question anybody's conclusions. You always question their assumptions. And I think the, the thing that struck me was there was a surprising amount of time that it took to announce the decision. And there's almost zero discussion of what the analysis was that reversed the decision. And I'll just leave that. But the question that I was scratching my head was, okay, what's changed in the last two and a half years that would necessitate? Now, I understand it's the, it's the president's decision and it's right for him to make that. And it was based purely on the, the ability to achieve full operational capability in the Space Command headquarters as quickly as possible. But I will tell you that the Alabama delegation is not taking this very well. They have very senior representation on authorizing and appropriating committees in both the House and the Senate. And the, at least three of the senior members have said it's not over yet. Don't un underestimate the creativity of members of Congress and their staffs to muck things up. I think you'll see a lot of that going forward. But I would say, as we have the perspective of time, this will make a fascinating case study for somebody's war college paper. I showed up as chief of the Air Force Senate Liaison Office in 2005. I knew nothing about what tanker lease was, and I learned very quickly not to get in between authorizers and appropriators on the Hill. This is a political decision. I mean, everything, everything Sledge said is correct, but this is a political decision made by elected officials. And the most important thing for the Air Force Space Force is to provide the factual objective data, and you were talking about it, Sledge, for the decision makers to make the best informed decisions. We're, we're not here, you know, as airmen and guardians to look at politics. We're here to just to provide the facts, like when we do and to go to a BRAC. BRAC becomes political later, but we provide the data. When the Air Force first announced this back in January of 2021, we, I mean, we've all seen it. There, there is a process, a strategic basing process. There's a basing panel. There's an executive steering group. They got criteria that they have to look at. And then GAO goes and looks at it and they found, okay, Okay. You know, there was a couple of, there were some significant shortfalls in the process, but they didn't change the outcome. And so then on Monday, we have the announcement, obviously supported by DOD, supported by the Colorado House and Senate delegation. And then, as Sledge said, the Alabama delegation, both House and Senate have come out against it. And it is also a very powerful delegation. So it's going to be a fight. It's a political fight. The job of our service members, our guardians, our airmen, provide the information as requested and follow the executive orders, but let this fight go up at the executive and the congressional level. 
All right. Uh, we're getting tight on time. I just wanted to offer anybody else have thoughts on this? Great to hear in the statement that the uh, U.S. Space Command is planning on meeting full operational capability sometime in August. As I talked about earlier, this is exactly what we need to have the stability to guide the transition of space capabilities from those designed for peaceful environment to those that we need in a wartime domain. Nice, uh, nice comments, Tim. Okay, General Deptula, please give us a Ukraine update. What's new and what should we be tracking? Well, first, it's taking way too long to get necessary warfighting equipment to Ukraine, whether it's F-16s, tanks, munitions, and so on and so forth. Ukrainian people are fighting for their lives and their nation and their sovereignty. And the equipment we promise is moving at a glacial bureaucratic pace. The lesson learned here for the United States is that we'll lose if this happens when we're fighting a pure competitor. So second, the Biden administration's security team, let me be blunt, is too ground focused. The constant focus on artillery, ground-based air defenses, and surface operations, and the lack of air superiority has resulted in a World War I reversion to trench warfare. This reveals the danger of a lack of joint representation in key Department of Defense positions. Hopefully, General Brown, as chairman, can help provide a more joint perspective than exists today, where we have an Army General as a Secretary of Defense, an Army General as the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, an Army General as the Director of the Joint Staff, and an Army General as a Joint Staff Director of Operations. Third, as a result of all the above, we have given the Russians the gift of time. They've used this gift to dig in, establish a strong defense, and fortify their lines. That really heightens the need to move outside the two-dimensional limitations of land warfare and truly embrace a combined arms approach to include exploiting the advantages of operating in the third dimensions of air and space. Ultimately, neither time nor manpower is on Ukraine's side. With a population of 43 million versus Russia's 142 million, Ukraine cannot win a war of attrition against its larger foe. So Russian President Putin will win that fight regardless of how incompetent his military leadership. It's simply a matter of math. We need to get necessary equipment that can change the equation of the Ukrainians, and we need to do it as soon as possible. General Tatula, I want to ask you a quick follow-up question to this because it, it seems like our lessons learned from the first Gulf War and into the Balkans was we leveraged air power to not have to bring our army, because that would seem like the last thing another country would want, the United States Army and ground forces to be there. Are we suffering from this mindset after the last two decades in Iraq and Afghanistan that we just want to have this occupation-type ground war that just grinds and not use air power for some reason? No, Slick, in all honesty, Ukraine simply doesn't have the size of air force that the United States possesses or her allies. So in many regards, it has been forced to engage in the kind of ground combat that is advantageous to the Russians. That's why some of us were talking about providing air power over a year ago. And if we had done so, then perhaps we would have given the advantage the Ukrainians needed early on in the fight that would have prevented the Russians from digging in. 
That's what I mean by providing them the gift of time. We'll, while we're not directly involved in this fight, we certainly could have provided some decisive forces in the context of air forces to the Ukrainians much earlier than they will ultimately get there. Thank you for that, sir. And with that, we are out of time. So I want to say thank you to everyone for being here today. It's always great chatting. General Deptula, Sledge, Laser, and Tim. It's been awesome catching up. Thanks so much. Hey, Slick. Thanks a million. It's good to be here. Always a pleasure. Thanks a lot. I really enjoyed it. And I hope everybody has a great summer. Thanks so much. Take care. With that, I'd like to extend a big thank you to our guests for joining in today's discussion. I'd also like to extend a big thank you to our listeners for your continued support and for tuning in to today's show. If you like what you've heard today, don't forget to hit that like button and follow or subscribe to the Aerospace Advantage. You can also leave a comment to let us know what you think about our show or areas you think we should explore further. As always, you can join in on the conversation by following the Mitchell Institute on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn, and you can always find us at mitchellaerospacepower.org. Thanks again for joining us and we'll see you next time. Stay safe and check six.